All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and for your word and for uh, just all you do to equip us for the work of the ministry, for um, your spirit who empowers us, for your word that guides us. And Lord, we just pray that uh, today would be just another piece of feasting on your goodness. So please just have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23. Today, check this out. We're going to read one chapter. A wave of disappointment fell across the room. I'm so sorry. I'll try my best to digress enough that you'll feel like it was worth the effort to show up. So, sort of. Um, So last week, if you were here, and if you weren't here, it may be the same. But last week, if you were here, you recall, uh, in chapter 22, we talked about the final four kings of the nation of Judah prior to the Babylonians coming in. And you may say, wait a minute, I just got off the bus. Hang on a minute. <laughs> so big picture, okay? Uh, God established the nation of Israel. Uh, after the reign of Solomon, they divided into the northern kingdom of what was called Israel and the southern kingdom of what was called Judah. Um, there were still Israelites in Judah, but uh, about 150 years prior to w- the time that we're reading, the northern kingdom got carried off into captivity by the Assyrian Empire uh, because of their sin. They got carried off not because the Assyrians were so strong, but because the Israelites were so sinful that God had to deal with them. And then you fast forward 150 years, the southern kingdom of Judah is about to go through the exact same thing for the exact same reason, this time by the Babylonians. And this time, they're going to be carried off to captivity for 70 years and sort of, they're going to live there sort of as a nation for 70 years, and then a remnant will come back after, after that 70-year period, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, and reestablish that nation uh, of sort of resettled Judah and Jerusalem, the capital. So, um, everybody got the big picture now? Okay, so last week we read about the last four kings, and they were all good or bad? Bad. Bad. Very good. And uh, so sometimes in life, we read about negative examples and we learn from negative examples, right? Clearly in the scripture, uh, we see that. We see positive examples and negative examples. And so um, one of the things that we learned from the negative examples of these uh, final kings was that they used their authority as kings to sort of feed themselves, right? And so uh, you, may, you may have had experience with this. Maybe you're a person in authority and you recognize uh, if you're trying to put one foot in front of the other and trying to be a godly leader, uh, whether it be in the workplace or whether it be in the home or whatever it is, you know it's a bit of a daunting task to lead with diligence and yet not lead in a way that's just primarily to serve yourself, 
Does that make sense? I know in my life I've had places and situations and, you know, where I've been in a, a place of authority. And frankly, if you're not in that place, sometimes you look at, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, right? Man, when I'm a grown-up, I'm going to run my own house, right? Remember that feeling you had when you were kids? And nobody going to tell me what to do, right? And sure enough, here I am right? And being a kid was pretty fun, right? <laughs> All you got to do is worry about keeping your bike upright, right? Well, life's a little more complicated now. And so you got to, uh, so anyway, there's the point of, of walking in authority and yet doing it in a way that serves those that are entrusted to our care. And clearly these last four kings of, of Judah didn't do that. And so Jeremiah is kind of continuing on that theme, if you will, a little bit into chapter 23. And so um, on one hand, it's a, little bit, uh, it's a little bit of work to read through a negative example. You know, we'd, we'd rather read through positive examples and all this kind of stuff. But, but sometimes you've got to speak the truth. You ever notice that? Sometimes you've got to speak the truth. And um, you know, if I can say it, I've said this before, I'll say it again. The most unloving thing I can do as a Bible teacher is to tell you, hey, you're good, you're good, you're all right, you're all right. That's, that sin, it's not a big sin. Don't worry about it, right? And, I mean, does God love you and does God full of grace and mercy and all that? Yeah, for sure. For sure, for sure, for sure. And the predominant message needs to be God loves you. But there is a reality of right and wrong, of sowing and reaping, of judgment comes. And uh, it would be unloving for me not to warn you of that. Is that fair? And so, um, so we read, that's why we read all of the Word, <laughs> because uh, some of it's softer and fluffier than others, uh, but we read it all. So he says, woe, that's a good word to start with, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Now in Jeremiah's day, there were lots of shepherds. We think of shepherds primarily in a spiritual context. We think of like a pastor or a shepherd or, a, or somebody like that. But in, um, in this time in history in the nation of Judah, really shepherds uh, could be a king, could be any kind of leader. In this, in this setting, you know, there weren't really, remember, there weren't chapter breaks in the, in the documents. And so Jeremiah is still just continuing the thought of chapter 22. And so shepherd in this setting, in this context, probably means uh, the kings and the other leaders who served as the role of shepherd, who were supposed to be nurturing the sheep, the people of Judah. But he says, woe to those. You know, woe is a word you don't want to hear from the Lord. Can I tell you that? Whoa. We're not talking like, you know, you met your wife for the first time. Whoa. We're not talking about that, right? We're talking about woe. Jesus used the word woe in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. A total of seven times in chapter 23. He's serious about self-serving leaders. He's very serious about self-serving leaders. Be very careful. And the woe here is to those who scatter the sheep, who destroy the flock. He goes on. Therefore, verse 2, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people, you scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. 
Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. And so we see the condemnation. They scattered the flock. They drove them away. They've not attended to them, though they've, quote unquote, fed them, right? Now, that's bad, right? If you're supposed to be a shepherd of sheep, you're supposed to sort of guide them and lead them, you know, maybe not scatter them everywhere, but be aware of them in a way that nurtures and takes care of them, right? Now, I love, Jesus had a thought on this. Turn over to John chapter 21, one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible. And so sometimes when we have a negative example, we need to balance it a little bit and see what the alternative is. John chapter 21, the context here is that uh, Peter denied Jesus the night before he died. Jesus dies, and then he's resurrected. And when he, um, uh, after his resurrection, and he's still walking on the earth, uh, chapter 21 of John to, uh, is really, the heart of it is Jesus' restoration of Peter and, um, and his relationship to him specifically. And I love what he says to him. So um, you know the story. Peter is discouraged. He says, oh, I'm just going to go fishing. Basically, I'm going to go back to my old life uh, prior to these last three years. I'm going to go back to my old life. I'm discouraged because I'm defeated. I denied Jesus three times. I don't deserve to be a disciple. I don't deserve anything. I'm just going to go be a fisherman. So he goes and he's a fisherman. Um, you know, they work all night, catch nothing. Jesus is on the shore early in the morning. He says, hey, throw on the other side of the boat. They throw on the other side of the boat, catch all these fish. And Peter said, hey, this reminds me of the last time Jesus did that. That must be the Lord. He comes to the shore. And then we see this sort of campfire, right? Jesus got this campfire on the beach. Uh, wouldn't you have loved to be there, right? Jesus is cooking fish. And so when they'd eaten breakfast, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of jo Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. How many times did Jesus asked Peter this question? I think it's no coincidence. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Sometimes when we are in places of authority, whether it be in a family or in a wherever. You know, you ever go to these like, uh, you know, like the Christian bookstore, the leadership section, right? How many books are in the leadership section at the Christian bookstore? 842. Just kidding. I have no idea. A ton, a gazillion, or a buzzillion, depending on where you're from, right? A ton. This is my favorite leadership manual. It's my favorite pastor conference. It's my favorite fatherhood lesson. It's my favorite 
any of this, shepherding. How do you do it? You feed my lambs, you tend my sheep, you feed my sheep. Is that cool? Only Jesus can come up with stuff like that, right? John Maxwell has to turn it into 300 pages, but Jesus can do it in three, three, three-word commands. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, right? And, you know, we all have different roles. Like, I think of my role here as a pastor, right? What's my job? Is my job to fix all your problems? I don't think so. Is my job to stand here and say, if you ever need me 24-7 in the middle of the night, I mean, should I be, should I serve you? Yeah, I should. But I should point you to the Lord. I can, I, I can work it a little bit so that I'm your Savior, right? And shame on me if I do that, right? What I really should do is feed His lambs. They're not mine. You're not mine. You're His. I should feed His lambs. What's the best thing to feed you, feed you guys? Pork? Pitch-in dinner stuff? It's not bad. We, we do do that, by the way right? But what's the best thing I could feed you? Man does not live by bread alone, but what? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's the best thing I could feed you. So, you know, I'm not a PhD, but I can read, feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Does that mean fix my sheep? No, it just means kind of be aware, try to have some awareness, try to pray for people, right? That's what we're all supposed to do. And by the way, is that limited to me? Not at all. Honestly, in many ways, you guys do much more of that than I do, which is awesome, which I think is one of the things that I love about this church is that you guys do that. And then the third thing, in case I didn't get it the first time, is feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Isn't that cool? So contrast that with what Jeremiah is talking about in chapter 23, right? These guys have scattered them, they're self-serving, all of that. It's, it's a big, ugly mess. It's a big, ugly mess. But, but, verse 3, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. And so this is partially fulfilled after the 70-year captivity in Babylon, but ultimately fulfilled uh, sort of in the end times, right? And you got to remember, Jeremiah's writing prophecy, right? And when Jeremiah writes prophecy, it's almost like when you see the, pro- the prophetic picture of God, you got to keep in mind that God is outside of space and time, right? So, you know, in we'll say 586 BC is when the Babylonians came. So let's say this is, you know, prior to that. You know, if Jeremiah is seeing future, he's going to see 70 years future, and then there's the first coming of Christ's future, and then there's 1948, the regathering of the nation of Israel, right? And then there's the second coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom, right? So all of that is yet future. And so when he says, I will, he's kind of talking about, in a sense, all of that. It's partially fulfilled with the regathering of the people after 70 years, but it's going to ultimately be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the millennial kingdom. And we see that even a little more partially fulfilled in the regathering of the people, of the Jewish people in the nation of Israel in 1948. 
right? And so we see all that playing out uh, prophetically, and God is in the process of doing that. God, by the way, is not done with the Jewish people. God is not done with the Jewish people. If we understand prophecy, we understand, and if we take the prophetic word as literal as possible, we understand that God is very much not done with the nation of Israel. And the reason I say that is because some people say, and it's, and, you know, I wouldn't fight anybody over it, unless they wanted to fight. But, I, you know, some say, well, God, you know, the nation of Israel was so evil, God just basically discarded them and has replaced them with the church. And you think, well, that's theological, you know, splitting hairs. No, it's pretty significant. Because what I just say about the nation of Israel, God what? Discarded them? Because does God discard people? No, God deals with people. God deals with people, but God doesn't discard people, right? And it's important that we know that in terms of the heart of God, but also in the prophetic picture. If you look at Romans, I believe, chapter 11, Paul answers the question very straightforwardly. He says, is God done with the Jewish people? Absolutely not. Romans 11, I believe, 11, verse 1. And so God is very clear about that. And so uh, if you ever hear any kind of prophetic um, interpretation that has to do with the the church replacing uh, the nation of Israel, uh, raise your antennas a little bit. So God is going to ultimately bring the Jewish people back. I will set, verse 4, I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. So God is going to spiritually restore the Jewish people and shepherd them. He goes on, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. You got to like this. You got to like this. And so this obviously refers to Jesus, right? No big controversy there. We're talking about Jesus. Uh, he's talking about, you know, you got evil shepherds and then the days are going to come when I'm going bra- to raise up the shepherd of shepherds, the good shepherd, he tells us in, in the book of John, um, chapter 10. He says, I'm going I'm to raise up the ultimate. It's a branch from David, a branch of righteousness. Now, this may be more detailed than you want, but you recall last week in chapter 22, we said that uh, Jeconiah or Jehoiah uh, Chin, uh, Jeconiah was cursed. Uh, he was from the kingly line from David to Solomon and on down. And he was, it says that basically none of his descendants are going to be uh, uh, the Messiah or his, his descendants won't prosper. We went through all that. I refer you back to last week. But, and so in the royal line, it would have seemed like, wait a minute, you just cut off the line to the Messiah. But actually there's a branch it's almost like you ever cut off a tree? You, you ever cut off a tree and there's a stump? And then it looks like that tree is dead. And then next thing you know, there's like a, a shoot off the side of it, right? That's what he's talking about, you know, the metaphor here. And, and the fulfillment of this is Jesus. And uh, if you turn back to the left, you don't have to turn there if you don't want. But uh, Isaiah chapter 11, he, Isaiah elaborates on this. He says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. You recall Jesse was the father of David. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. 
The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So this is obviously a reference to Jesus. And um, it says here back in Jeremiah, a king shall reign and prosper. And so that refers to his second coming. You know, when Jesus came the first time, he came as a suffering servant. When he comes the second time, he comes as a conquering king. And notice also here, it says here, in his days, and this is, again, just sort of how you read prophecy a little bit. And, and again, I, I say this to point out the idea that when we read prophecy, it's wise, I believe, to read it like it was fulfilled the first time, right? First time, we were told prophetically that Jesus can be born of a virgin, right? Was Jesus born of a virgin? Yeah. Say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Was he born in Bethlehem? Yeah. You know, if you were right in Jewish history, you might think, uh, not sure how a uh, Messiah can be born of a virgin, so that must be like an allegory. And anybody knows that the king's going to come from Jerusalem, not from some, you know, podunk town outside of Jerusalem. He's going to come from Jerusalem because he's a king. And you kind of rewrite history and you say, oh, that's kind of an allegory, Right. But the point is, when Jesus came the first time, he fulfilled prophecy very, very literally. And so I believe he's going to do it the second time very, very literally because he's consistent, right? That's not rocket science. And so one of the things it says, in his days, in the days we're talking about when the Messiah, when the branch, the branch of David comes and reigns and executes judgment and righteousness in the earth, in those days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Well, you say that has to do with the first coming of Jesus, were the Jewish people dwelling safely during the time of Jesus? What do we have during the time of Jesus that might have threatened our safety? Romans. Romans. Do they protect the safety of the Jewish people? Like policemen, right? No. No, they weren't safe. Or the, you say, okay, well, it was fulfilled in 1948. Are the Jewish people dwelling there safely like no conflict now? Everything pretty chilled in Israel right now? No. No, not at all. And so I believe, if we're going to take this literally, Israel will dwell safely. We're talking about the millennial kingdom. And why does it matter? Because we can look forward to a yet future time when Jesus Christ will execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, what, I, what burdens me on this world today is the lack of is, a, is a, a lack of righteousness in the earth, and I want more of it, right? And sometimes we, I was talking to somebody earlier, you know, we have this thing where, you know, we want to administer justice. That person did me wrong. I want to administer justice, right? And yet, that's God's job. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's God's job. It's not my job to administer justice. It's my job to be faithful, and so there's going to be a time when the Messiah, Jesus, will come. He's going to execute justice, judgment and righteousness in the earth. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. We can look forward to that day. That'll be the establishment of the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom. Verse 7, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, As the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but they will say, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country 
and from all the countries where I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Now, we know when Babylon invaded, they invaded out of the north. And so uh, the near fulfillment of this is the restoration of the Jewish people from the north country, from Babylon. But again, there's probably a, a yet future reference when God gathers all the nation and that becomes their identity and, and they, they live in a time when he is reigning and ruling in righteousness, right? You think about the Jewish people. Let's say the Jewish people at this point in history that we're talking about. Did God establish that nation? Yeah, their, their whole heritage, everything they knew since they were born. They grew up hearing, you know, our father Abraham, he had a son uh, Isaac, and he had a son Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, the, the, the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. And they all went down to, to Egypt, and, and, you know, they became a great nation there. And God brought them out of Egypt with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. You know the whole story, right? And, and we are now the nation, the people of of the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Israel, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, because God brought us out of the land of Egypt. And the day is going to come when they say, we are the Jewish people, the people that God brought out of the north country, the people that God brought out of, uh, you know, Babylon. Well, if you think about, like, even where they're at today, doesn't it feel like, yeah, God's done an amazing thing, Right? He brought them out of Babylon. He let them be there during the time of Jesus' first coming. He you know, seemed like they were lost, and then they got regathered in 1948. It seems like the prophetic word is, full, is fulfilled, and it seems like they're all together, but doesn't it feel like it's not yet complete? Right? It feels very much like it's not yet complete. And so the day's going to come when they say, hey, we're, yeah, we're, yeah, God brought us out of Egypt, but whoa, God brought us back together right? I mean, we, think about this. We ceased to exist as a nation. From 70 AD, when the Romans decimated us, until 1948, almost 1,900 years of silence, and then God restored. That's, that's miraculously. That's miraculous, right? And so God continues to do miraculous work according to His Word. Then Jeremiah takes a little bit of a transition now. He's moving into, he's going to talk for the rest of the time here about uh, false prophets. You know, there's, there's, there's ungodly leaders, ungodly shepherds, and, you know, the corollary of those people is false prophets. And so he says, my heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake, I'm like a drunken man, and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy words. And so Jeremiah knows the Lord, he knows his holy words, and yet he knows what the false prophets are saying, and it's super distressing to Jeremiah. You ever been in a situation where you know the truth? You know the truth, and people are speaking falsehood, and you know they're speaking falsehood? It's like grievous, right? And so Jeremiah knew that as well. He says, for the land is full of adulterers, verse 10, for because of a curse, the land mourns, the pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up, their course of life is evil, and their might is not right. And so, you know, adulterers could obviously mean literal adulterers. It could also mean those who were unfaithful to God. They served idols. Uh, spiritual adultery was for sure what he's been talking about throughout the book of Jeremiah. 
for both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord, therefore their ways shall be to them like slippery ways. In the darkness they shall be driven on and fall on them. Fall in them, for I will bring disaster on them. The year of their punishment, says the Lord. And so, God's going to bring punishment. And again, these are hard words to read, right? But we have a warning from the Lord, right? They had warning from watching their northern kingdom brethren, right? 150 years prior, get taken out. And they didn't learn from, from uh, history. We have the privilege, again, from being able to learn from history, if we so choose. Verse 13, and I have seen folly on the, in the prophets of Samaria. Again, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, as Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. So he says, I've seen the folly of the prophets of Samaria. I saw what happened 150 years ago. They prophesied by Baal, and they caused my people Israel to err. Also, I've seen a horrible thing now in the prophets of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. They commit adultery and walk in lies, they also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me, and her inhabitants are like Gomorrah. And so we see this, you know, we see, hey, we should have learned the lesson from Samaria. That was folly. We should have learned from their bad example. But now in Judah, the false prophets condone sin so much that they, quote, strengthen the hands of the evildoers. And their end will be like the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. In our modern day, we have people that not, aren't necessarily claiming to be prophets, but I'll just say it this way. If I stand here and I'm not calling myself a prophet, but I'm teaching from the Word of God, I'm sort of representing the heart of God, hopefully, to people, right? If I misrepresent God, I'm in big trouble. I'll be held accountable for that. Does that mean I won't go to heaven? I, I don't think so, but it, anyway. But I'll be very uh, accountable for that. And I take that very seriously. And here's the problem. just candidly. There's tremendous pressure on churches and pastors in modern-day America to fill seats. That's just reality. Because if we fill seats, what happens? Those people that are sitting in those seats, what else do they have on their seat? They got a wallet, right? And if we fill seats, then we fill coffers, right? If we fill coffers, we make the mortgage, right? We make the staff payments. This is just reality. I hope I'm not too tangible here, <laughs> too practical. Wow, this is pretty practical. Um, if we fill the seats, we fill the coffers. If we fill the coffers, we make the mortgage payment and we make my salary, right? And so, if we call sin, sin, and that just makes people uncomfortable, and we might not fill so many seats, and we might have trouble making the mortgage payment, we might have trouble making my salary. 
You guys are awful quiet. Is that uncomfortable? Is it hot in here? Right? I mean, that's the reality, right? That's just reality. I'm just calling it. That's reality. And so, uh, I think it's healthy. I mean, honestly, it's healthy for me to just acknowledge those things. Uh, and this is more, more information than you want, but we've gone out of our way in this church to keep our overhead so low that I don't care. And there's a reason for that, because it affects what I say here, potentially. I want the overhead here to be so low, so low. Anybody notice the granite in the bathrooms? Me neither. I want the overhead to be here to be so, I mean, I want, it to, I want you to have a, you know, we pushed it a little bit by cutting off the heat, you know, last month. You know, we're always testing the limits. We thought, mm, can they handle being, no, they can't handle that. Okay, so we decided to cave on the heat and fixed it, and I want everybody to be comfortable and, you know, all that. But you know what I'm saying? It's just the reality. It's just reality. And so I'm accountable to God. And I know that I'm a human being. And I know that I have uh, vulnerabilities as a human being. I know that I got a flesh. I know that we all have incentives. And I just want that not to be a part of my incentive. So that's just the reality. That's just, that's just straight up, as I said, more than you wanted to hear. Which says to me, what verse was I on? Yeah, verse 14. So if I am worried about filling chairs and thus filling the coffer and thus making the mortgage payment and thus making my salary, I'm going to have a hard time calling sin, sin. Does that make sense? And it may be that if I feed his sheep, feed his lambs, tend his sheep, it may be that what I need to say as his ambassador, 2 Corinthians, it may be that what I need to say as his ambassador is, hey, you know that thing that you're doing that's wrong, and you know it, and God knows it? That leads to a road that's not a good place. And if I could lovingly encourage you from the heart of the Lord, repent. Repent. And go down a road that leads to a good place. The narrow road, Matthew chapter 7, that leads to life. Right? So anyway, that's the whole... And honestly, that was what was going on in the nation of Judah. Right? We want to make everybody feel warm and fuzzy and say, I'm okay, you're okay, everything's good. It's okay, it's just a little sin, no big deal. And, and next thing you know, you know, hey, you want to bring in some... You want to bring in your temple prostitutes into here? That's okay, we can do a little bit of that. And, you know, we can, you know, we can worship Baal and Molech. And, you know, let's just, all be, let's just be all things to all people. Right? And, and hey, whatever works for you, that, that next thing you know, you got total chaos right? Because what? We want to accommodate people. Now, I'm all about accommodating people, right? But I'm more about speaking the truth. And I believe the heart of God is to speak the truth. And so this is what he's coming against. Verse 15, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I will feed them with wormwood and make them drink the water of gall for from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. And so, you know, more punishment is coming. 
uh, profaneness is spread out to all the land, and now it's going to go to the prophets themselves. They were approving of everyone's sin, and they were leading the way. Verse 16, thus says, the Lord, thus, thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, The Lord has said, You shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, No evil shall come upon you. And so back to the, you know, in the context of everything I just said, back to the time of Jeremiah, what's going on? God says, You are full of sin. Your nation is full of sin. You're worshiping Moloch. You're worshiping all these false idols, all this crazy stuff. You've rejected me. And because of that, the Babylonians are coming and they're going to bring punishment. And I'm warning you. And what I really want for you is to repent. Capital R, repent. And be delivered from the destruction that's coming. But the false prophets were saying, Hey, peace, peace, peace. Jeremiah's a little psycho. We all need to chill and get along. Everything's okay. Everything's fine. What did Jesus say about what's going to happen in the, in the second coming? Just like it was in the days of Noah, right? Right? Something's never changed. What's going on in the days of Noah? Hey, peace and love, man. Right? What's going on today, 2021? Hey, peace and love, man right? And God wants to get their attention. And so he doesn't, uh, the words peace, peace are truly false prophecy uh, to the people. You know, when God wants to tell us peace, that's awesome. We should say peace, peace. When God wants us to say, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, he'll also reap. If he sows to the flesh, he's going to reap corruption. If he sows to the Spirit, he's going to reap everlasting life. God wants us to be able to say that. Why? Because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. And so sometimes we need to say that. Sometimes we need to say peace, peace. Verse 18, For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and, who, and has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? So what are we talking about? How do we defend against false prophecy? How do we discern against false prophecy? By the word of God. Can I say this? Can I say this? Can I say this? It's the Word of God. And if we ever in our lifetimes had a time in world history, in our community, in our nation, where we need godly discernment, it's now. And how do we get godly discernment? By the Word. Who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and perceived and heard His Word? Who has marked His Word and heard it? His word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Your word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. And so again, you know, he's going back. He said these prophets speak of their own accord. They don't speak for God. But in the latter days, he says, you'll understand it. So when, they, when the false prophets don't speak for God, when they speak this, it's confusing sometimes. But even as we see, as we look back, we say, oh, yeah, 
we see God's word play out. And we, it says in the latter days, you'll understand it perfectly. As, pro, as prophecy continues to be fulfilled, we get more clarity, right? He says, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I've not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. And so, you know, the prophets don't speak for God. They speak their own opinions. But he says, if they had stood in the counsel, if they had stood in my counsel, if they had stood in my counsel, and if they'd caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned from their evil way. You know, the word of God is so cleansing. It's so cleansing, and it's so healing. And repentance is a good thing if that's what we need, right? Because it brings healing, it brings cleansing. And he says, if they'd stood in my counsel, then they would have turned from their evil way, and they would have been delivered from the judgment. And he says, am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? And so again, you know, these false prophets, the more that the false prophets talked and the more that the people listened to the false prophets, it just seemed like God was far away. You ever notice that? You ever notice the more we talk about, like, like if I stood up here and talked about uh, peace and love and, you know, mix a little scripture in with a little John Lennon and, you know, we got, you know, imagine there's no heaven, I wonder if you can, it's easy if you try, whatever, however it goes. Had a good tune, but horrible words, right? And we mix in a little bit of that, it feels all good. Next thing you know, God seems where? Far away. Have you ever heard anybody say, you know, God seems far away, right? And if we can graciously ever have opportunity, and as the Lord gives me the freedom to do this, I'll say this. Sometimes people say, you know, it seems to me that God is just so far away. Well, did you read his Bible? this morning? No, I'm too busy. But God sure is far away. What, are you trying to obey Him and follow Him? No. Life's just too hard. I'm mad at God. He's far away. Right? These people thought God was far away. Now, does God go far away? No, God keeps knocking, keeps loving, keeps, you know, we might be mad at God. We might think God did us wrong or whatever, right? That doesn't change the fact that God is loving. Whatever you think of God doesn't, doesn't change who he is, right? And so these people thought God was far away, but he wasn't. And then he says, verse 25, he goes on, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name. Notice these, these people prophesy lies. They say, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of, their, of the deceit of their own heart who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. 
So that's pretty tough. So he says, even these prophets, even these, these prophets, these false prophets, sometimes they'll say, well, I had a dream. Or I've had an experience. Or maybe I've had a vision. Right? Now, does God speak to His people by dreams sometimes? Absolutely. How do we know that? Because we have the Bible, right? God told Joseph, right? Hey, go ahead and take Mary, right? Because that that's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It's not some sinister... It's not what it looks like, right? God totally spoke to Joseph through a dream. God totally speaks to people sometimes through dreams. So the fact that he did it then stands to reason he could do that now. Is that possible? Yeah. But does every dream, if, I, if I'm a false prophet, if I say I had a dream about such and so, does that add any credibility to my false prophecy? No. No. And so if I could just, and again, you know, you, I don't want to take anything away from what God can do, from what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. You know, you can go all different directions with this. But the reality is, these people, if you just take it at face value, these people were speaking false prophecy, and they were using their dreams as an attempt to validate their false prophecy. And it's possible to be a false prophet and to use your dreams or your experiences or your stories or whatever to try to validate that false prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14, 14 29, Paul's talking about, you know, the gifts of the Spirit in the church. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. What's that tell me? That tells me we're supposed to discern. If somebody gives a prophecy that's contrary to Scripture, I have to discern that. If somebody has a dream and they got a message from the dream that's contrary to Scripture, I have to discern that, right? And uh, perhaps we still need to do this because we're commanded in the New Testament to do it. First John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So how do we test the spirits? By the what? Word of God. By the Word of God. Even the Holy Spirit, who, you know, sometimes speaks to us through various means right? Who gives gifts, I believe, by the way, gives just as much in the way of supernatural gifts today as he did in the book of Acts. There's, I believe there's no indication from Scripture that any of those are any less manifest now than they've, than they've ever been. But Jesus also told us that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the discernment to test the spirits. So these prophets are prophets of the deceit of their own heart. And we read a few weeks ago, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So whenever we hear a word from the Lord, or whenever we hear whether I'm teaching or anything, we need to discern it through the filter of the Word of God. And somehow, as we do that, and, and I say this because we're all sort of wired differently on these kinds of, right? I mean, I say, you know, I say God's, the Holy Spirit is no less capable than He ever was, right? 
in the book of Acts. There are some people that believe that uh, sincere people, Christians, who believe that the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit died off with the apostles. Will those people be in heaven, you think? Yes. There are other people who are very charismatic by nature. Will those people be in heaven, do you think? So would it be a good time now, maybe, to learn how to get along with both of them? Right? And maybe not try to fix one another, because we're all wired a little bit differently. Right? But maybe just love one another. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us the, this, the, the body of Christ is like the human body, right? Some parts sort of have this sort of vibe and some parts have this sort of vibe, right? You might think, man, I'm a, you know, I'm this kind of body part. Kind of cool and kind of flashy and kind of, kind of hip, right? Somebody else might be a big toe, Right? That's okay. You need a big toe. You, yeah, I won't go off on that. <laughs> I had a patient one time. I, will, I am going off on that. <laughs> I had a patient one time that lost his big toe. And you, you think, well, who needs a big toe? That guy desperately needed a big toe. Yeah. Anyway. That is more than you wanted to know, I admit. Sometimes I just fall into a hole and can't get back out. But anyway, these guys are prophesying by dreams. But I think it's important that we know this. Verse 28, the prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has a word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? And so, most commentators would say basically what he's talking about here is he's comparing his word to the dream of the false prophet, right? And the word is like the wheat, and the dream is like the chaff, right? And so, there's nothing wrong with the supernatural experiences of, of, of life as Christians, and we need to not take that away at all in any way. And yet, there's also discernment to be had by the body of Christ. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who use their tongues and say, he says, behold, I am against the prophets who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their recklessness. Yet I did not send them or command them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. So we have, we have false prophets. First John tells us that false prophets have gone out into the world, even in the New Testament times. And so that's nothing new. And we'll probably uh, still have opportunity to deal with them in our lives. So when these people speak, verse 33, or the prophet or the priest asks you, saying, what is the oracle of the Lord? You shall say to them, what oracle? Now, this word oracle goes into this final kind of thing, and then we'll just read this all together and we'll wrap up. This word oracle... Uh, is also translated burden. So it's not, so the, the understanding of this is the sort of the burden of the Lord, 
right? And so part of what these false prophets were doing, sort of the vibe that they get, and I'm just trying to explain sort of the vibe a little bit, because I think we do see it somewhat, is these false prophets were coming and they're saying, the oracle of the Lord, or like the burden of the Lord, like the word from the Lord on my heart is like a heavy burden, right? Now, I told you a little bit, you know, I could manipulate, you know, and, and speak a lot of peace and love to try to fill the seats, to try to fill the coffer, to try to pay the mortgage and my salary, right? Well, there's another thing I can try to do is I can try to get you to sympathize with me and say, oh, bless your heart, right? By talking about the burden of the Lord. Oh, I got this heavy burden I'm carrying for the Lord, right? Now, is life hard as a Christian sometimes? Yeah, I'm not taking anything away from that. I'm not taking anything away from that, right? But can sometimes I kind of work that a little bit? Like, oh, I got a heavy burden for the Lord. The Lord's giving me a heavy burden, right? Can I work that sometimes, right? Yeah, so that's what he's talking about here, okay? So the oracle of the Lord, here's what he says. Again, think about it kind of like a burden. So when these people or the prophet or the priest ask you saying, what's the oracle of the Lord, the burden of the Lord? You shall say, what oracle? I will even forsake you, says the Lord, and as for the prophet and the priest and the people who say the oracle of the Lord, I will even punish that man in his house. Thus every one of you shall say to his neighbor and to everyone his brother, what has the Lord answered? And what has the Lord spoken? Right? So instead of saying, oh, the burden of the Lord, just say, what did the Lord say? Like, what did his word say? And the oracle of the Lord that you shall mention no more. For every man's word will be his oracle. For you have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. Thus you shall say to the prophet, what has the Lord answered you? And what has the Lord spoken? He says you have perverted the words of the living God. And so in the same way we can, you know, sometimes the false prophets, we'll say, we'll say we, but like false prophets can use dreams to try to validate their message, Right? Maybe dreams that weren't really visions from the Lord, but they're trying to validate their message. Also, some people can use the word or the interpretation or the understanding or the deliverance of the word to try to manipulate as well. So he's saying that is a perversion. God talks about it. He says you've perverted the words of the living God. Here's the bottom line. God doesn't like to be misrepresented. God does not like to be misrepresented. And so if I say, oh, the burden of the Lord, I'm carrying this heavy burden for the Lord, that misrepresents God, and He doesn't like that. Have you ever been misrepresented? Like somebody says something about you that's just not true? Even if it's not necessarily, you know, vindictive. They said that, you know, maybe they said you like country music or something, right? I think I've dogged on country music too much lately. Um, disco. Okay, that's universal. We all hate disco, right? So, you know, maybe somebody said, hey, he, I think he likes disco, right? If, if, it's not like they said something bad about you, but it's like, that kind of misrepresents me, right? Does that make sense? You've ever been misrepresented on Facebook? Maybe? Yeah. God doesn't like it. God doesn't like it. He says, you've perverted the words of the living God. The Lord of hosts, our God. Verse 37, Thus you shall say to the prophet, What has the Lord answered you? And what has the Lord spoken? But since you say the oracle of the Lord, therefore thus says the Lord, because you say this word, the oracle of the Lord, and I have sent to you saying, Do not say the oracle of the Lord. I mean, God's repeating this quite a bit. 
God's pretty tore up over this. Therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you and forsake you and the city that I gave you and your fathers, and I will cast you out of my presence, and I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten. So God does deliver judgment in ways, right? I think of it like this, if I could just address this sort of burden of the Lord sometimes that's spoken. I heard a guy one time, um, actually a friend of mine, who uh, does a lot of uh, family and marriage ministry. He said, you know, marriage is like riding a bicycle uphill. And I thought about that. Ladies, if your husband said, you know, being married to my wife, it's kind of like riding a bicycle uphill. You like that? Feel edified? Feel like to make you say, aw. And I was thinking about it. Our Christian walk is a relationship with God, right? We're the bride of Christ. He's the, he's the groom. But it's very much a relational thing, right? Do you think he likes to say, well, walking with the Lord is a heavy burden. I think he likes that. I think that misrepresents him in a, maybe a subtle way, maybe a not so subtle way. Jesus had something to say about that. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. He's not denying that we, are, that we labor. He's not denying that at times we are heavy laden. We go through stuff. I know a lot of stuff you guys go through. It's It's labor. It's heavy laden. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can I ask you this? Please don't ever forget that our Christian life is abundant. It's abundant. Is it hard? You bet it's hard. Why does God allow it to be hard? Uh, maybe so we can learn perseverance and character and hope, Romans chapter 5. Maybe so we can be a comfort and a consolation to others, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. There's a reason for it. But it doesn't mean that He doesn't carry us, right? Take my yoke upon you, right? The picture of the yoke, right? The two oxen. Now, if if I've got this yoke and I'm like an oxen and Jesus is on the other side, who's doing all the work? Jesus is. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This Christian life is not like riding a bicycle uphill. It can be hard. It can be like riding a bicycle uphill at times. It can feel like riding a bicycle uphill at times. I acknowledge that. But if we feel too much like that, oh, the burden of the Lord, this life is a burden with the Lord, it may be 
and let me just as graciously as I can encourage us, it may be that we don't fully grasp the heart of God or the character of God or the goodness of God. It may be that we've got a real good grasp on the challenges of life and less of a grasp on who's carrying us through this life, right? And as it relates to the first part of the chapter, right, God puts us in places of influence to encourage others in that message. He orchestrates all of it. He puts us in places of, of authority at times. He puts us in places of submission at times, all according to how he orchestrates it. And what he wants us to do is to feed his lambs, to tend his sheep, and to feed his sheep. And if we learn from him, we find what? Rest for our souls. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're so good to us. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. That you who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That you bless us above and beyond all we can ask or think. And yet, Lord, we acknowledge that this life can be tough, that the challenges are real. And Lord, we ask that we would lean more on you day by day, that you'd reveal your goodness to us. Lord, give us discernment, please, as there's so much information and noise out there. Please give us discernment. Please fill our hearts with your word, our hearts and our minds, that we could be people who exercise discernment, not as critics or cynics, but just people that discern and walk faithfully according to your word. Thank you for the privilege, the amazing privilege of being your children. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.